Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Scenario's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. Peter Seligman, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Neotero. I cultivate my soul through nature. Today we are joined by Peter Seligman, CEO and founder of Neotero. For over 40 years, Peter has been an influential and inspiring voice in conservation. He works in partnership with communities, governments, and businesses to find innovative solutions to ensure the sustainability of the planet's natural and cultural resources. Peter is the founder and CEO of Neotero and is also the chairman of the board and former CEO of Conservation International. Peter's full bio is available on our podcast website. First, I want to say, Peter, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm happy to do that. Thank you for the invitation. So I'd like to get us started by asking you to share a memory or a story from your childhood that will help us understand your earliest exposure to religion, inner awareness, or spirituality, and how that shaped you. When I was 13 years old, I was working for a rancher in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and my job was to move the irrigation ditches. It's basically moving these cloth dams from one ditch to the next. I'd have to wait for the water to run across from one ditch to the next ditch as we flood irrigated this field. I have just a distinct memory of lying on the ground while the water slowly moved from one side of this field to the next side, chewing on a piece of grass, looking at a bumblebee as I listened to the birds singing, wondering, I wonder what it would be like to be a bee. I wonder what those birds are actually saying to each other. And it was at that point where I really intuitively, not intellectually, had this sense that all beings are related and interconnected and sentient. That was when I was 13 and the journey just continued from there. What I'd also like to ask you, maybe just to go a bit deeper, what would you say is your purpose in this work that you're doing and how did you come to find it? Well, I think my kind of cognitive recognition of a purpose came to me when I was probably 17 or 18 years old. I was really lucky. I was reading an article in New Yorker and that's pretty amazing for a 17-year-old. And it was the only article I had ever read in The New Yorker. But a friend of mine had given it to me. And it was a description of a conference that was being put together to talk about sustainability. I think this was in like 1968 or 1967 when I was 17 or 18 years old. And the man that they were writing about was basically saying that if you're interested in taking care of nature, you have to take care of land and the earth. And I sent a note to my father. I was working in Wyoming at that time on a grizzly bear study. I sent a note to my father saying, I know what I want to do. I want to devote myself to taking care of the earth. So that's when it began. And so 
For years, I worked at different organizations on conservation projects, and it was always about finding a piece of earth or land that was really beautiful and protecting it and making sure that it was secure. I think that what I've learned since then is that an engagement to take care of the earth requires more than just the security of a place following the Western capitalist approach of buying or acquiring territory. It really requires a transformation of the way humanity relates to the earth. That's really why I'm so deeply engaged with indigenous peoples and their wisdom about the reciprocal relationship that all beings have with each other, that humanity depends upon all the other beings they share their place with, and all those beings depend upon humanity as well. And it's that reciprocity, that reciprocal obligation and care that I think is essential. So if I were to define, you know, my purpose as of now, it's how do we break through all those barriers that societies place and people place so that people can once again understand this interconnectedness between all living things. And that's the challenge because it's hard to overcome those barriers. So if we look at what began for you with protecting the land and now the work that you are dedicating yourself to working with Indigenous people, and I know that's much broader and we'll get into that in the podcast. What inspired you to make the transition? You've been at Conservation International for almost 40 years, and now you are dedicating yourself to Neotero. Where did that transition come from? What was inspired by it? And what made that shift occur? The principal reason that I decided to step down as the chief executive officer of Conservation International was I devoted my life, my adult life, to the building of an organization that would work with communities and work with governments, work with industry to take care of the earth. And I'd done that for 30 years, and it was a successful organization. And yet it was deeply connected to one person, to me as the founder, and as in most cases, the breadwinner for the organization. And I thought, you know, this is a moment when we really need to make certain that institutions thrive going into the future which meant that I had to really think carefully, as had the board of directors of CI, I had to think carefully about how does an organization survive the founder? And so we decided very thoughtfully, five years before we actually made the change, when we were 25 years old, I said to the board, in five years, I want to be able to have the new leader running this organization. And we need to search for those people that have the capability. We need to have them understand the culture of the organization, be within the organization so that there's not a shock when we change leadership. And then on our 30th birthday, I'm going to step down. And so it was really kind of an intentional approach to ensuring that one organization that had become very effective could continue and not be disrupted or dismembered or collapse when the founder left. And so that's why I did it. It was just so that we could ensure the capacity of Conservation International to continue to thrive after I stepped down. And that transition worked out really well. We ended up with a great group of people that are leading the organization and doing a really brilliant job. And the culture continues to be agile and innovative and humanistic. In that process of leaving CI, I asked a series of questions about what is the role that nature has to play in addressing the climate challenge. 
And through the work with scientists within CI and outside of CI, we were able to understand that there is an essential role that the natural world plays in addressing the climate crisis. And that role is the role of taking carbon out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, its trees, its plants, its chlorophyll, and that how that works, as well as then containing and keeping carbon within the bodies of the earth and the bodies of all of these other living organisms. And that a third of the climate solution is actually based upon nature. And that's what we began to focus on. And I asked our scientific team a simple question, which was, if nature is a third of the climate solution, where on this planet Earth does this occur? And when they drew out the maps and showed where the tropical forests were, the biodiversity was, and the deep ocean troughs, and the peat bogs, I asked another simple question, which was, who owns those territories? And what surprised me was learning that a third of the Earth is under the guardianship of indigenous peoples. Half of the forests on the planet Earth are within their territories. Over 80% of all the biological diversity, all the other beings on the Earth, are within their territories. And these are communities that are under assault and threat every day from societies that want to take those territories, extract what's on them, get rid of the people. And I thought, we need to focus on supporting and being strong allies with these communities. How do we design an organization that can work in multiple worlds, can be trusted by indigenous peoples, who have a totally legitimate reason not to trust colonizing forces and can also work with those colonizing forces to get them to understand, to slow down, to open your eyes, to listen and to learn about indigenous peoples, indigenous ways and means, so that we can actually become better in how we who are non-indigenous live on this place and learn from this place and learn from indigenous peoples. And that seemed to me as I left CI to be a calling that would benefit indigenous peoples, benefit non-indigenous peoples, would be an opportunity for me to learn enormous amounts and would really be a, a way to be a strong ally for others that have been under assault for you know five centuries. So in 2017, you founded Neotero, which means our earth, which is beautiful. In Esperanto. In Esperanto, and you have a family connection, I read, to Esperanto. Yes, my great-great-uncle was one of the founders of Esperanto, which was a language that was designed in the late 19th century by a Polish ophthalmologist and this great-great-uncle, Georg Arnhold, with the hope that there could be a common language in Europe so there would be no more war. It obviously has not been successful. We've had two terrible world wars in the beginning of the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, and now we've got another horrific war taking place in Europe. So their purpose was noble and it didn't work. And yet you found there a beautiful name to capture the work that you're doing. Well, I guess one question I have as you're speaking about not only the great need that we are able to protect this earth's land and, and the rights of the indigenous people who own it, you mentioned that important element of trust building. And at Synergos, that's core to what we do. We also work with different sectors. We empower communities. We have a methodology called bridging leadership where trust is at its core. So how did you do that? How do you build trust in communities that have not been treated well historically? 
there are a couple things that we decided to do in the beginning. The first was we decided if we were going to work effectively with indigenous peoples, our DNA as an organization needed to be very polycultural. And so our board of directors, we have 13 people, seven are indigenous. The chair of our board is a remarkable indigenous woman by the name of Victoria Corpus, who is from the Cordillera of the Philippines. And then we have six other indigenous leaders that are on the board. We have some great non-indigenous board members as well, but the majority of our board is indigenous and always will be. And we decided to do the same thing with our leadership team and our staff in the same way. So that was part of it. And the composition was important. Another really essential part of our culture was within the organization, a commitment to really listening very carefully. And so we really have an open heart to each other, listening carefully to each other, being very respectful, being thoughtful about our words and our language and the order in which we speak and the way we choose our strategies. And then the other piece is that we partner with Indigenous peoples. And to partner with Indigenous peoples requires really an important capability of listening. And I think that the way you earn trust is you learn how to listen and you listen really actively. We never enter a community with anything like we want to tell you what to do or we know the way because we don't. You know, we enter in a way of we'd like to earn your trust. We would like you to visit our homes. We would like to see your homes. We'd like to understand what it is that you as a community are concerned about. And when we are invited in, then we engage. And so I think that takes time. That's a process that really requires a patience that most organizations don't have. And so another part of it is when we deal and talk to the people that support us, we tell them that we have to be patient, that we have to go with the pace and the schedule of the peoples that we are supporting and allies with. And that takes humility and it takes patience and it takes a, a commitment to a different approach to collaboration. Wonderful. That's so important. Listening and full representation as you know, you're putting into practice and modeling how this could look for others to understand as well. It's not that easy. I mean, it takes learning different approaches. As the CEO of Conservation International and the founder, it's easy to lose your humility when you have lots of power. And what is really essential when you're dealing with indigenous communities, and I think when you're dealing with any communities, it's really recognizing that you have to change the power dynamic, that nothing that we imagine that we want to achieve will be accomplished by us. It has to be accomplished by others, and they need to be in charge of what they do. And that is a shift that really takes an intentional approach to changing if it's going to work. And so what have you seen setting yourself up this way and listening and building trust? What have you started to see some of the changes that are taking place? We see a wonderful emergence amongst indigenous peoples of a expectation and almost a demand, a legitimate demand, that nothing should be taken from their territories without their permission. We see genius in their deep understanding of the earth and a profound difference in the way they look at the planet from most societies. And it's so profoundly different in that what I have seen is that indigenous peoples generally, and obviously there's a massive range of indigeneity, but generally, look at the earth 
through the eyes of this is a relative, not this is a commodity. And that is the most profound difference. It's understanding how wise that is, that I think is probably the most profound thing that has occurred in my life when it relates to conservation. It's not a deal. And I was raised in the U.S. conservation movement, which was let's do a deal. It's not a deal. It's a family. It's an obligation. It's a relationship. And that's transformative. That means you enter these conversations totally differently. And I see now an opportunity emerging where these voices of indigenous leaders are being heard more and more. And so part of what we do is how do we elevate the opportunity for indigenous people's voices to say what they want to say in their own language, in their own way? How do we elevate the opportunity for non-indigenous peoples to hear that? Hear it in a way where they're listening, not just, yeah, I listened to you, I heard you, but... So you make it a deep reflection. That's what's happening. I see that happening more and more. I see much more openness amongst people that are representing nation states and climate negotiations as they begin to listen and are exposed to different perspectives. It seems like there is in so many people kind of an innate desire to find that place, yet they didn't have any place to go to. And I'm finding a great more receptivity than I had ever expected. And that's what is so encouraging. Yeah, that's very encouraging to hear your enthusiasm. I can feel it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're doing that? How are you connecting them to platforms? How are you helping strengthen their voices? How are you helping people listen? So our approach, we take two different approaches as an organizational strategy. One is working with specific indigenous communities that are the guardians of territories that are large and extremely important for the rest of the earth. Remember when I said we were looking at these as climate solutions? So we're working with about 200 different communities of indigenous peoples who collectively control well over 100 million hectares of the earth. And these are high biodiversity carbon territories. And these are territories that these communities have authority over and are committed to securing and protecting from assault. And they are under assault in places like Brazil, as an example, with the government in Brazil being such a dangerous government now. So part of it is this upholding the rights of indigenous peoples in their specific territories. The other we think of as how do we expand the opportunities for all indigenous peoples? So we have really three principal or four principal approaches that we take. One is storytelling. We have an indigenous storyteller, an extraordinary woman by the name of Tracy Rector. And Tracy leads our storytelling. And we have many, many indigenous storytelling fellows. And together, we've just launched an initiative and just finished the first season of an initiative called Reciprocity. And it's stories from 12 different communities told through the eyes of the indigenous filmmakers and their communities of how they see their relations with the earth and other beings in their territory. And so one is doing these films and these stories. And the other is then, how do you create the platform so those stories will be heard? So Reciprocity, the executive producer of Reciprocity, there are two. There's Yo-Yo Ma, and there is Hindu Ibrahim, a wonderful indigenous leader. And that has been shown at Sundance. It's shown at the Big Sky. It's now on an Oscar track. So our idea is 
the right stories, the right storytellers with the right skill, and the world will see this. So that's one approach. A second approach is through policy. How do we get nation states who are negotiating about climate or negotiating around biological diversity, how do we get them to listen carefully to the wisdom of indigenous peoples, recognizing that indigenous peoples control a third of the earth and that that third is so extraordinarily valuable, so elevate the respect and the standing of indigenous peoples in all of the global climate and biodiversity negotiations. So we have a team, again, led by an indigenous woman, and we are bringing and financing indigenous negotiators from around the world to be in Geneva, in Kunming, in New York, in Glasgow, officially in position to be heard as negotiators so that the voices of a range, a variety of indigenous peoples are part of the conversation that is taking place at the global level. A third way of really influencing this is financing. And it's how do we effectively get the philanthropic community to recognize that if you're concerned about the earth, we need to be focusing not on the creation of protected areas that historically have moved indigenous peoples off of their territory. All of our parks were indigenous territories, most of them spiritual places that have just, the indigenous peoples have been pushed off. What we're really trying to get the philanthropies to understand is that Indigenous guardianship of their territories is an alternative pathway to caring for the earth. In addition to the creation of parks, indigenous territories do the same thing, but they do a way that involves the spirituality and the respect and the reciprocity that indigenous peoples bring to this conversation. And so that's really an essential part of this entire conversation. And so we have worked now with, I think, a group of 12 major philanthropies that have come together in a Protect Our Planet initiative. So they have all agreed to a core set of principles, which basically are respecting the rights of indigenous peoples and the sovereignty of their territory, respecting the idea of free, prior, informed consent is essential before anything happens to an indigenous territory, and that indigenous guardianship is an alternative pathway to caring for the earth. And so these 12 major philanthropies have all agreed to those sets of principles. Now we've taken those same principles and gone to the bilateral agencies and said to the bilateral agencies, if you want to support indigenous peoples, you need to agree to these principles as well. And we're in a conversation with them and they, I think, are very open to that. The final piece is that as more and more indigenous communities engage with non-indigenous, there has got to be a strengthening of their capability to do these negotiations because traditionally they've always been picked on and exploited. And so a final piece that we're really focusing on is how do you build a resource hub that will really be supportive of indigenous people so that they have the skill set for dealing with peoples that want to do carbon deals or people that want to do other kind of transactions so that they have the capability to manage their finances or a capability of having the technological capability of monitoring their territories, all of which they have deep capacity to do, but have in many cases not been yet exposed to the specifics of how to do that. And so we're working and being led again by a group of indigenous peoples on designing a resource hub to strengthen the capacity and support the capacity of indigenous peoples. That's basically what we do. Wonderful. I can see that you're working on many levels, which is needed. This is a globally urgent problem. What would be the ultimate vision 
of this work that you're doing? My ultimate vision is that indigenous peoples have the security for self-governance of their homelands and their territories, that they have the security of being able to share their cultures with their next generations, that the colonization of indigenous peoples ends. And colonization is not just taking of territory, it's destruction of culture. That non-indigenous peoples open their hearts and their minds to an understanding and a recognition that this enormous diversity of cultures that all see the earth and all the other beings as relations is actually a healthy, wise, sane approach to life. And that the approach that we in the capitalist society have somehow ended up with, that the earth is a commodity that can be exploited, traded, sold, has unintended consequences that are very, very dangerous. And so if we are wise as non-Indigenous peoples, we will embrace some of the aspects of indigeneity in our thinking so that we can take care of this place in the way that our future generations will be appreciative of. It's a really important vision, and it sounds like a lot of education needs to be done And that's really what you're doing and you're sharing the stories and you're influencing policy and you're bringing these groups to the table where they have a right to be and their voice can be heard. So as we come to a close, do you have a website you could share or any other resources they could connect to? Sure. Just go to Niatero, N-I-A-T-E-R-O, www.niatero.org. We'd love to hear from anybody that's interested in this. There's a lot of work to do. I imagine that you reach through this podcast people from many different places, many different countries. It's worth, you know, learning about the indigenous peoples that lived on your territory before you arrived and to see how they related to the place. You know, we should be really clear. I mean, indigenous peoples are people. They deal with similar temptations. The differentiation amongst these societies is that most of their important decisions are made through kind of a collective process. And that takes time. It's not rushed, but it's a real commitment to listening carefully. And I think that if I were to say one of the great vulnerabilities that I see in the West is that most people don't really know how to listen. As we're hearing, we're working on our rebuttal or our response. And, you know, it's a yeah, but as opposed to a real acknowledgement and understanding of what is intended by the person that we're listening to. It's great to be on a journey like this. keeps you alive and vibrant when your hearts are open and your minds are open. Well, we hope to share this great work, the importance of it with as many people as possible. And through this podcast, also your participation in Synergos' Global Philanthropist Circle is another way that we're reaching philanthropists around the world and others. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And yeah, we really appreciate your time and all that you've shared. Thank you. It's great to meet you and enjoy the river. (laughs) (laughs) What I loved about this conversation with Peter is how at an early age, he felt a deep connection to nature. And this connection has fed into his passion today, which is grounded in helping people understand the reciprocal relationship between all beings and the earth. 